1: Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Spirit Matters the new podcast on uh, mindbodyspirit.fm. I say new because uh, some of you may be familiar with the previous version of Spirit Matters that I co-hosted for a number of years. Um, And if you're looking for that, (laughs) we stopped uh, early this year and uh, you can go to spiritmatterstalk.com and uh, listen to any of our 300 or so interviews in the archive. This new website, a new podcast, we've been at it now since the beginning of 2023. And if you're new to it, uh, I invite you to subscribe. Look at our previous um, interviews, all with very wise people who will help you along your own spiritual path, as will today's guests, two for the price of one. And uh, I should say both of them are friends of mine who uh, I've got to know since uh, my wife and I moved to Massachusetts a little over a year ago, and I'm eager to talk to them. Signe, that's with a G, Signe Schaefer, (laughs) was led as a young person to the work of Rudolf Steiner and Waldorf Education. She directed foundation studies at Sunbridge College in New York, and prior to that was on the faculty of Emerson College in England. She was the founding director of a professional development program in biography and social art. She's also an author. Her books include... Why on Earth, Biography and the Practice of Human Becoming, and Ariadne's Awakening, Taking Up the Threads of Consciousness. And her latest book, which prompted the invitation to have her and her uh, husband, Christopher, with us, is called She Was Always There, Sophia as a Story for Our Time. That'll be a main focus of our conversation and uh, Signy is joined by Christopher Schaefer, because he too is an expert on Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy, which we're also going to talk about. Chris is a retired adult educator and organization and community development consultant who's been involved with Waldorf education and anthroposophy for many years, he too was at uh, Sunbridge College and Emerson College. He, too, is the author of many articles and books, including Vision and Action, Working with Soul and Spirit in Small Organizations, Partnerships of Hope, Building Waldorf School Communities, and Reimagining America, Finding Hope in Difficult Times and... These are difficult times. So welcome, Chris thank and you so Signe. Nice. Oh,
2: thank you,
0: Yeah,
1: Phil. I usually uh, in- introduce only one person. So <laughs> I hope we're not uh, confusing the uh, listeners too much. Um, I always begin by asking our guests to fill in the listeners on their own spiritual histories. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, it, each of you, briefly telling us uh, something about your spiritual origin stories, how you came, in your cases, to anthroposophy and Rudolf Steiner. Uh Signice, should we start with you?
0: Okay. So um, I grew up in a family that didn't practice any religion at all, didn't go to church. And... Um, it, my father was a scientist. My mother had some bad experiences with religion. And and that was fine, except that I had a variety of experiences as a child that I had um, no particular language for understanding, but I never doubted. So, for example, I remember as an, a young child, just knowing that I, that we must live more than once, because it just didn't make any sense to me that you would just live once. And it was, I didn't know the word reincarnation or anything like that. I'm sure if I spoke to my family about it, they would have said, well, not really, sweetie, kind of thing. (laughs) Um, And I also had a very strong sense that there was another world. And when I was about six, I decided I wanted to figure out how to get there. And so, I sat on my bed, and I decided if I closed my eyes and pinched myself really hard, that I would wake up in this other place that I knew existed, but I didn't know anything about it. And so I did that. I can remember sitting there and pinching my arm as hard as I could, and then I opened my eyes, and I was still sitting on my bed, in my bedroom. And the funny thing is that I I never said, oh, you're wrong. I just said, hmm. I must be dreaming that I'm pinching myself. I'll Mm -hmm. have to find another way someday. And I then just skipped back into childhood. And I don't remember ever talking to people about this at all. My father died when I was a teenager. I had no vocabulary whatsoever for death or anything beyond death. Um, But a couple of weeks after he died... I was walking down the hall of my big public high school, and I knew he wasn't gone. And it's not that I heard words, but I heard that I couldn't just be sad. If I was just sad, that would be a denial of everything we had been to each other. So in some way, I think that moment was the beginning of an opening up but what's odd when I look back is that I never I didn't go asking people I didn't go reading about things I didn't delve into eastern literature or anything I and I was a pretty curious student so I just didn't I just kept all this inside and I really didn't have words for it or any doubt about it and then when I was 20 I met Chris and we were um On one of our early dates and he started talking about this kind of different school that he had gone to and it was they had a really holistic view of childhood and it was rich in the arts and lots of experiential learning and I was like where are these schools this sounds wonderful and then he said well there's a kind of philosophy behind it and my parents are sort of into that and and it was called anthroposophy and People who were interested in anthroposophy also thought there was reincarnation. And he said a few other things. And for me, it was like, like this moment of recognition. And I just tell me more, tell me more. And, and what is anthroposophy? What is that? Anthroposophia, he said. who's Sophia? What is this about? And that really began then a whole search. I was still in college, so, you know was very slow over those years to start to read some Steiner. And whatever I read, I would find myself thinking, oh, so that's what this is called, this thing that I knew. Oh, there's a name for that. Oh, okay. And that just carried on. And I, well, ever since then, I've been busy with Rudolf Steiner's work. There's much more one could say, but that's probably a place to stop.
1: We'll get to it. First, what about you?
2: Well, you know, I can maybe pick up where where Signy, uh, what Signy indicated. I went to uh, a Waldorf school and my parents had uh, were active with anthroposophy. My father was a physiologist scientist and uh, you know, he he was very interested in in Steiner's scientific work. Anyhow, so I had Having grown up in that context, I initially rejected it and didn't want to have anything to do like with a it. a good
1: teenager.
2: <laughs> That's right. Uh, but but then I think uh, we got married and we had a daughter. And for me, getting engaged and starting a Waldorf school was my kind of entrance to this, uh, to, to a deeper appreciation and interest in anthroposophy. And then we went off to get training in europe uh signy to did a teacher a waldorf teacher education and i worked with this group of consultants that uh, had a basis in anthroposophy and and so it's been part of our life journey really since that time i'd looked at other you know i'd looked at other spiritual traditions and i had um tried other means such as masculine and a few other ways of trying to sort of sense is there another world and how does one get there but but that became really the uh, the main focus of our inner life and and of our outer life
1: fascinating um, since we're on the subject one of the reasons i wanted to have you on in addition to signey's book was um I hadn't interviewed anybody involved with anthroposophy uh before and Steiner's influence uh is much um, bigger than I think most people realize uh in the West um or in in, in the U.S and um and so I I wanted to uh cover that and and have uh our uh listeners become more familiar with steiner's work so let's assume uh the people who are listening and don't know anything about Rudolf steiner or or anthroposophy or the waldorf schools which are are modeled They, they probably have heard of waldorf schools more than they have of anthroposophy or uh, steiner himself perhaps uh tell us who steiner was how anthroposophy came to be and what it's the core teachings are
0: well steiner was a spiritual teacher he was came from austria originally um and he was very much wanting to, I think, work as out of with a Western consciousness. Um, along the way, he he did, you know, he had books about philosophy, about cosmology, about religion, and then one of his followers, who had uh, was the owner of the Waldorf Astoria cigarette factory asked him if he would start a school for the children of the factory workers. And that was the beginning of the Waldorf movement.
1: Um, so the Waldorf schools were named Waldorf because. After the,
0: the factory. And, and it,
1: are you saying that they're, the Waldorf, Waldorf Astoria name, which we associate with a fancy hotel, was a cigarette it,
0: factory.
2: He had actually. This the, was
0: in Germany where it happened. Uh, I mean,
2: yeah, the 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 owner of the factory had bought that name, or use of that name, in order to sell his uh, cigarettes, <laughs> to, give, to give them uh, esteem. And uh, I see that's great. And so um, he used the name Waldorf, and then uh, because the school started there, it became. They became known as Walder schools or Steiner schools.
0: Yeah, they're also known as Steiner schools.
2: And there may be, you know, a thousand of them around the world in most countries and many, many more kindergartens uh, than that. And they go all the way from, you know, nursery, kindergarten through 12th grade.
0: Maybe it's important to say that for Steiner, um, a relationship between practical life and an esoteric life finding a balance between them was important. And, you know, so biodynamic agriculture is something that comes out of Steiner's work and is really quite now well known in many parts of the world. Or the the Camp Hill movement with children and adults with disabilities of different kinds. Um, there's a whole medical movement that's related to Steiner's ideas. So, in a way he responded to questions so if someone asked him what would you do for the children of my factory workers Oof, out came Waldorf education
1: mm.
0: boggles the mind to think if if what if no one had asked you know um this, now is my if, go ahead chris
2: uh, what i was going to say is we may be neglected to mention that as a child he had clairvoyant capacities and he in a way, struggled to enter the sense world fully, um, the the physical sense world. And he studied science and philosophy, getting a PhD in philosophy, and saw himself as trying to develop a spiritual science that is not an extension of the rigor of the scientific mind into the realm of the spirit. Something mm-hmm. that Harmon, the president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, called for many, many years ago now in his uh, book, Global Mind Change. And so after he had sort of philosophically grounded his method and his approach, then he shared the results of what he saw as his spiritual research, mm-hmm. in particular around questions of karma and reincarnation. Or human development, the nature of the spiritual world, the inner path, and then all of these practical things, which, which for me are important because they demonstrate that um, a spiritual perspective can lead to incredible innovation in uh, a number of fields, and and mm. life, and his work demonstrates that.
1: We should place this. Uh... Uh, In historic uh, time perspective, we're talking about the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Am I correct?
0: Yes. And in the beginning of the century, he was involved with the Theosophical Movement. Yeah. And he was then the head of that in Germany. And then he broke away from that because he wanted to really develop spiritual science more, I would say.
2: They had a falling out over Steiner's sense that Christ, the Theosophical Society saw Krishna Murti as the reincarnated Christ. And Steiner said, no, that's not the case. And over that question and the whole development of Star of the East and the growing Eastern orientation of the Theosophical Society, he broke off and started what he called the Anthroposophical Society.
1: What year would that have been?
2: Uh, that was, it, it began happening in 1909, and, and that separation finished in 1913. Mm-hmm. And he lived from 1861 to 1925. Till 1925?
0: 25. Mm-hmm.
2: So at
1: the, the very beginning of the Nazi era, but not its
2: full expression yet. He... He was attacked by the Nazis. That's
1: uh, why I asked. I had read. You know,
2: it. you know, in he was giving large, large lectures to sometimes to thousands of people in Germany, promoting his imagination of how a new sort of democratic society could be created. And the Nazis and Hitler in particular saw him as a as an enemy to be attacked and Steiner himself was greatly concerned about the rise of fascism and Nazism, and when the Nazis came to power, they closed uh, up, they closed off, the uh, closed up the Waldorf schools and forbid meetings of the Anthroposophical Society.
1: Um, and uh, many of our listeners might be uh, familiar with Theosophy and Madame Blavatsky and Annie Besant and those figures, and also uh, uh, Krishnamurti. Uh, who denounced the notion that he was the Messiah yeah. uh, after Steiner, did. <laughs> so um, and then had this illustrious uh, career as a spiritual teacher here in the U.S. Why the name Anthroposophy so easily mispronounced, and and why? Uh, what does it mean?
0: well that's of course a, a big question and generally speaking people would have said along the way oh the wisdom of the human being sophia like philosophy love of love of wisdom now i've sometimes thought of it more the human being coming to wisdom but it always was a question for me why why did he choose this name why sophia and Interestingly enough, it's not something that has had a lot of press in the anthroposophical world. Mm. People accept, well, wisdom of the human being kind of thing, but that was never quite um, enough for me. It's probably partially why this last book of mine is is now out, because I, I am um, interested in Sophia and who is this being, spiritual being.
1: So the second part of the name, the Sophie part relates to Sophia. And we'll come back to that. The first part of the name is anthro as in anthropology and human, so it was a a, a intentional sort of combination of uh, root forms to become anthroposophy, I would assume.
0: Yes.
2: I would have thought also it was, his way of distinguishing it from theosophy mm. was a, you know, a God-centered wisdom. Mm. Uh, here it was uh, a human-centered wisdom.
1: Very interesting. And his background was in science. Um, if you look up anthroposophy online, it'll tell you uh, reincarnation comes up, karma comes up. Uh, those are t- those are concepts and terms that we associate with the East. Did, was there uh, now we know that the Theosophists had a strong connection uh, to India, certainly in the early part once the 20th century came about. Uh, d- was Steiner did he come upon those things? through his studies, or was it more of a uh, inner revelation? Or both?
0: Probably both, of course, but I think more from his own, what he would call, eventually he would call spiritual research, or his own clairvoyance. And um, of course, if reincarnation is, in fact, true, it's not limited to some part of the earth. It's right <laughs> the whole world. Whether people in the west have an idea for it or not yeah which once upon a time they probably did but not for a while
2: he did study um you know he he for example um did commentaries on the gita or mm. he he wrote about um uh, buddha buddha he wrote about um uh, indian culture and civilization as well as um uh, other cultures um and and maybe it's important to add here phil that he had an experience that he would call i experienced the mystery of golgotha so he had a christ experience Hmm. and from that point on he he developed um you know, he had lectures on the different Gospels and he saw Christ's physical incarnation as a kind of historical turning point for humanity because mm-hmm. he saw him as a, not as a human being, but as a divine being incarnating in human form. Um,
0: for all of humanity, not mm-hmm. just what the Christian churches were able to do with it so far. Yeah. Important to say that.
2: Right. Yeah. So he wasn't... Um, yeah, he, he didn't connect himself to the Christian churches as such. Right. But he nevertheless saw Christ as a kind of the spirit of, of the earth and of humanity and felt that the impulse of love given to the earth and to human beings through his incarnation was incredibly important for future evolution of humanity, saying often that he felt that humanity was at the very beginning of understanding the mission of Christ and the true nature of Christianity, even at his time.
1: There are uh, dozens and dozens of of, of volumes written by uh, Steiner or perhaps some were talks he gave that became books but there's a vast literature of Steiner's and books about Steiner and books written by people like you who are uh, students of Steiner's. Are there also, uh, since he was a, he, he spoke in terms of spiritual science, which has the connotation of being very practical and applied, um, are there practices associated with anthroposophy? Are peop- are there uh, practices that uh, students of Steiner engage in, either individually or uh, collectively?
0: Yes, many, many. Um, some of his early books, this is the sort of basic books, one is How to Know Higher Worlds, and that is really a book of of exercises, I think one could say more or less, and mm. description of the results of exercises and so on. You know, beginning with reverence, some very practical, beginning with inner quiet, and then moving on in in a variety of different ways. Um, Theosophy was another one of his early books, and again, it has a whole section on on the path of of development, spiritual development, or uh, what's now translated as esoteric science, another mm-hmm. one of his basic books, again, central chapter in there is on the path of development for the student with many, many different kinds of exercises. Um, and that and, uh... throughout throughout his life and um at the at toward the end, he, you know, there was this building of the Gertianum. In Switzerland, a build a center for anthroposophy, and it was burned in an act of arson. It was an incredible mm. building, handmade by artists, really. And then he he created a refounding of the anthroposophical society. And the the central foundation stone of that was a meditation ah. that he said he was laying into the hearts of, of human beings. And then he also carried on with a whole nother kind of further developmental path, a a, a school for spiritual science for the people who wanted to go that path. Yeah, Do you want to add anything there?
2: Well, maybe just to mention, uh, because Signe mentioned the name he he became the editor as a very young man Mm -hmm. before he wrote his basic books. He became the editor of Goethe's scientific writings. Hmm. So he moved to Weimar and then he, he was given this, um, um, this task and, and he connected his own, own method of uh, science and inner uh, spiritual science to Goethe's way of understanding botany and color and the cosmos, so he had this deep affinity to Goethe and Schiller, and to German culture as a whole. Uh, and and um, yeah, gave many talks and lectures and a number of books about Goethe and and uh, Goetheanism. Uh, mm. Which of course says nothing to American audiences no. because uh, they don't know who, who Go- Goethe is. Um, nevertheless, has a ring and a kind of foundation uh, in German culture, and he did everything that he could to connect himself to to different uh, German or German-speaking uh, philosophical and scientific traditions.
1: Well, uh, the German idealists. Are familiar yeah. to to many uh, well Americans who might have come across Schopenhauer and Schiller and people like that in in college, and it sounds like Steiner was influenced by that thread of uh, thinking.
2: Yes, and and he he wrote a book. He gave a series of lectures many times on philosophy, and that was put into a book called The Riddles of Philosophy. Where he gives a very interesting account of the evolution of philosophy from Greek times to the present. It's quite an extensive book. One so more question on Hegel and Kant, in particular, in the uh. German philosophical tradition.
0: And then Once, he, one of his very early books, also was translated as "The Philosophy of Freedom." It's uh, also translated as
2: "The Philosophy of Spiritual Activity." Philosophy
0: of Spiritual Activity or. There's another one. Anyway, it doesn't matter right now. But in a way, he describes that book as one human being's difficult ascent to freedom. Mm-hmm. And in a way says philosophy as a, an academic subject has ever less interest for him, but how the individual human being takes up the, the challenge of freedom in our times. That was what was moving him. Interesting. Um, philosophy is definitely where he he really gives the many different um, schools of philosophy their due.
2: That book was my test of whether or not I could find my way into Steiner's work because uh, I had studied philosophy as an undergraduate and taught philosophy of social science at MIT. And so my te- one of my tests was, is he fair to different philosophical traditions? And I felt that he was. So,
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: One last question on this thread, uh, which is uh, the, the manifestation of Steiner's work that most people are familiar with, even if they don't know there is a connection, are the Waldorf schools. I mean, I've met people in my life who have sent their children to Waldorf schools who have no idea that they were started by uh, a spiritual teacher, you know, named Rudolf Steiner, or that there was anything called anthroposophy, but they knew the schools were appealing and and uh, sent their wanted to send their children to them. So tell us about the Waldorf schools and what makes them distinctive.
0: Wow. Well, I mean the the catchphrases are a holistic education. But it's they're also really working with the, each child. And and there is a developmental picture of child development that underlies it, although each child will be going through that in their own way. Some of the, some of the things you can observe is that in elementary school, there's a, a class teacher who stays with a group of children, ideally for eight years. Wow.
1: And
0: that doesn't mean they don't have other teachers they you know they have languages from from first grade so they'll have language teachers spanish german japanese depends where they are you know french um but then they'll have other classes where they have other teachers but at least in the morning they have this class teacher who well you know you could never be a class teacher and say oh i can't wait till this kid is gone next year (laughs) <laughs> because they're not gonna be gone. So you have to go deeper. You have to find a way to love every child or you shouldn't be a Waldorf teacher and, and the families because it's a community that is built up. The class that they're in is a community for many years, not about competition, but about letting each of the children um, grow and develop in the ways that they need.
2: So, for example, there aren't grades in the first six years of school. There are individual reports on the child and how he or she is doing in different subjects. That goes
0: right the way through.
2: But the assessment is really based on the teacher's sense of what the capacities of this child are. And I would say also something else pretty foundational is that the the curriculum and the way in which things are taught reflect Steiner's view that in some sense the child's development recapitulates the development of humanity?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: For example, in sixth grade they teach uh, Greek and Roman history. So so and and in um, ninth grade they teach revolutions. Uh, In so there, there, there's a whole way of looking at uh, history as the evolution of the human being and connecting it to personalities. So there's a strong focus on biography in the teaching of history, and there's sort of this notion of opening the book of history and opening the book of nature, uh, and. And introducing people also to cultural and cultural creations in books and literature and art,
0: and they also are. It's very experiential. So the the children make their own books. They're called hmm. main lesson books, and things are taught in main lesson blocks of three or four weeks. So Roman history, or you know, botany, or a new a new aspect of mathematics, or something. Um, And then they'll leave that subject and they'll take up another one. But they don't use a lot of textbooks in the early years. They make their own and they're illustrated and their, you know, their own essays are in there and so on. They really are quite some works of art as the years go by. And and also the you know, there's a lot with with drama, with with. Making things real with going outside and finding things, it's not just, um, you know, sitting in your desk and taking tests, they don't have a lot of that sort of thing.
1: How many times in your life have you described Waldorf education to people who said, as I'm about to, I wish I had gone to that kind of school?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wish I had, <laughs>
2: yeah and and our children and grandchildren have and uh, i i had the experience of going to 6th grade and then to a waldorf high school
1: nice um one last question about it are the the spiritual or metaphysical uh precepts that might define anthroposophy are they part of the waldorf education or does the educational philosophy and practice just sort of follow from there without being explicit.
0: It, that I'm glad you asked that, Phil. No, they're not teaching about reincarnation or it's not teaching. like a
1: parochial school no, or,
0: not yeah. at all. And people come from every kind of background to Waldorf schools. And um and I think they should and and that the teachers have a deeper sense of what education might be is also very important. And so it influences how they teach, what they teach, but they're not, you know, they're not, it's not about making little anthroposophists. That isn't <laughs> the what okay. we're at all.
2: And it's interesting where we lived uh, outside New York in Spring Valley, there was a whole, um, Sufi community that built up around the Waldorf school there because wow. they wanted they, to send their, to the they wanted to send their children to this school. Right. I, interesting. Everything. Yeah, I could yeah. see
1: that kind of thing happen. Yes. Well, thank you for all that. Uh, I'm you know, I've always wanted to discuss Steiner and and his work on the show and I'm I'm glad we were able to. I want to segue to Signe's new book. Um Chris is leaving us. If you if you if this was video listeners, you would have seen Sig- uh, Chris stand up and depart. Thanks, Chris. You're welcome. <laughs> and we have Signe here by herself now to discuss her new book, She Was Always There, Sophia as a story for our time. Signe, tell us uh, what brought about the book why you wrote it why you came to do the book uh, at this point in in time
0: okay um well you know i i talked about my my journey toward anthroposophy and but of course i was a young woman it was the late 60s and i was also very interested in the just beginning to develop women's movement at the same time and i felt then going into the seventies, I felt there has to be a connection because yes, better rights and better jobs and all of that is deeply important, but this is about something bigger than that. This is about our whole human evolving consciousness. There's a part of our human nature that's trying to come alive in a new way. I hope anyway, that was my feeling. And, um, So I was very interested in what anthroposophy might have to say to this question of evolving consciousness. And, and of course, the more I went into it, the more I found that it did have something to say, but so these were the years when we were living in England and in the we moved there in 1973, we went for one year and we ended up staying for eight years and both were involved in also in teaching. And but in the early years of that time, with other women, I, I, we just began to say, you know, there's got to be more to this. We have to work on this. What can we do? And a friend and I put up a notice at the college and in the village, and 17 women showed up. And that was the beginning of many years of working with women's groups, um, doing a tremendous amount of research into anthroposophy into mythology into archaeology all that was coming and ferment in those years and um it was then in the late 70s that the what became Ariadne's awakening became a a book it that came out of lectures that some of us gave at the first conference that we had actually it was in california um, um looking at questions of balance masculine and feminine and questions of balance and so on. Um, so that subject has always been with me. I taught it over the years. Um, and I was always interested in human development at every different kind of um, from every diff- many different angles. Um, and gradually I began to be, more persistent with my question of who who is this sophia who is this what why and um i i read a a, a book by an, an early anthroposophist that was on this foundation stone meditation that i mentioned at the beginning and he in there he talked about a myth that rudolf steiner had told that was called the new isis myth it should be called the new Isis Sophia myth. And no one, I asked everyone, no one had heard of it, though it was in a book that many people had read. And it's a very strange story uh, about not the old Isis, but the Isis of a new age, who is an invisible statue behind a visible statue, but she is asleep and she is veiled. And she has a an inscription over her head that says, I am the human being. I am the past, the present, and the future. Every mortal should lift my veil. The old lift
1: I, my veil, you said? My
0: veil should lift my veil. There was a statue of the old Isis in Egypt. They were often also veiled. And there was one with an inscription that said, I am the past, the present, and the future, no mortal should lift my veil. Because to lift the veil would be, you would have to have been initiated or you would die. Right? Ah. So here was a whole new story. And and she's very confused. She she ends up having, she has an offspring, but she she schleps it around the world. That's the word Steiner uses, schlepping. She schleps it around till it falls into pieces. And I, I, I don't need to tell the whole story now, but it became part of my thinking and eventually I would start sometimes to tell it and most people would go to sleep and I totally understood that and then there would be someone who would come up afterward crying and saying Mm. I've waited all my life for this story and so that would just give me courage to say okay I don't I understand if they're asleep they'll hear it at some other level that's fine but Somebody needs this story when I would somehow get the impulse that I needed to tell it. And then I gradually began to find where Steiner actually did talk about Sophia. And he he talked about her as the wisdom of the world. And he talked about how our, in a way, our materialistic consciousness killed her in the 19th century. But we need to wake up to a new possibility to a new story. And he he actually talks about how this Christ being is part of the earth now for for everyone, whether we know it or not. But the problem is we don't know it. And that it's not the Christ we lack, he says, but the Sophia of the Christ, the knowledge of the Christ. So that also became a, a kind of phrase that stayed with me trying to understand it over the years, trying to work with it. And I, I didn't really set out to write this book in one way. I I avoided wanting, uh, writing it because I, in the beginning, there was almost nothing to read about Sophia. And then there were a couple of really wonderful books that came out in the early nineties, the myth of the goddess and another one called Sophia. And many others. People began to talk about her more and more from then on. Um, I didn't want to write about about her. I didn't want to explain her and convince somebody. But I found I had to do something. It it wouldn't go away in me. Um, I just really hoped that I could somehow invite her onto the page a little bit. Um, so it's a it's a strange sort of book in a way. Um, it's not it's not a fat book. It's a, it's a thin book. It but, is very um, thin. It is. And a little it has, more than
1: hundred pa- hundred pages.
0: pages. Yeah. And it has three sections, which when I was working on it, I I thought of them as my story, her story, and our story our being.
1: That weekly. was one of my questions to have you explain those three parts.
0: Okay, so I felt like I needed to say why this matters to me and how over many years. And I, I found that I have been writing journal entries and poems and strange little things for decades. So I decided, all right, I'll just let some of them come into whatever I'm saying and so that's my story. And at the end of that first ch- chapter, if you will, I tell this new Isis Sophia myth as well. And then I, I realized that I needed to tell her story too. And at a certain point, I just thought, well, just say once upon a time and do it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I did. And... um you know the voice changes a little because it comes into history from a very mythic past but i just pick up a few random almost um myths to say a little bit about and acknowledge all the ones that i've left out because i certainly have and then and then the third chapter i i feel like something is happening i f- have felt it in my whole life and I I see it in others as if there's a kind of knocking, knocking on my heart or knocking on my consciousness that says, wake up, wake up, there's more, you know there's more, wake up. And I became comfortable thinking of that as Sophia, as this wisdom of the world that is somehow saying There's more for you to know. There's more that you need, world, people, human beings. Um, But you have to attend. And I see that happening with many, many people who would never call that Sophia. And that's fine fine with me. Um, But I'm comfortable calling it Sophia. And because of my... Sorry, my background with anthroposophia also. Um, And, uh, you know, it's, as I say, it's all very brief in this book, but I, I, I point to areas where I see this happening, whether it's in all kinds of community building possibilities, where people want to collaborate in new ways, they want to go beyond their individuality to a new kind of working together, or how the whole world of death care and and life after death has come in the last decades into many new ways of seeing it. Um, well even psychology, it's working with the soul and and Sophia is also very much related there. But um, there I've are...
1: interviewed a number of people, mostly women, who uh, are speaking in similar terms in the last number of years um, about the emergence of the divine feminine, of the female face of God, depending on the language they use, of goddess uh, practices. Uh, If they're Hindu-oriented, they're talking about the various... Uh, Feminine forms of the divine that show up as Durga and Lakshmi and so forth, Kali, if they're uh, Western or Christian, they might be emphasizing the teachings of the Christian, female Christian mystics, Teresa Mm -hmm. of Avila, Julian of Norwich, etc. What's that?
0: Hildegard
1: of Bingen. Hildegard of Bingen, exactly. Or if they're simply metaphysical or, you know, uh, Wiccans or whatever, they may even use the term Sophia or um, uh, something similar from Hebrew or whatever language it is. So um, do you see those expressions that I'm referring to as part of this, what you're calling uh, a kind of emergence of Sophia in the world.
0: Yes. Yes, of course I do. I, um, you know, she is a divine feminine being from before the division into gender of any kind. And that, you know, she, she holds paradox and asks us to, step into a, a new relationship to paradox that I think is extremely important. I um, yeah, I I have great admiration for many of the people who have done all kinds of research into the goddesses into earlier forms in in into the different mythologies. Um, I don't think Sophia's only about women. And some mm-hmm. of those people, I don't mean this as a criticism, but limit their
1: yeah
0: the influence to women. And and I even can understand why, but I personally that isn't where I go. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think whatever, whoever this being is, is about all of humanity. And that it has a relationship to the feminine side of humanity is important, but isn't the only thing that's important. Right. I'm glad
1: you mentioned that, because, as as have uh, some of the other women I've spoken to about this. Is that, uh, it's a terribly important thing. I mean, uh, I know men, deeply spiritual men, who um, if they have a devotional uh, practice or uh, side to their spirituality, many of them uh, have d- divine feminine as the form. It, it it has a. This is one of the paradoxes. This is all beyond our conceptions and our. Even you use the term spiritual being and i know it's a limited term because this is beyond what we think of as beings <laughs> but um some you know there's value in having a sense of form or uh entity and and it, it, for many of us it it's female it's mother mm-hmm. it, and uh you don't it, it has nothing to do with you know our human uh genders does it
0: no not really
1: (laughs) in in your book in one of the uh, journal entries you wrote the more we try to talk of her define her name her the more evasive she becomes we can characterize we can enumerate qualities wisdom compassion truth service love but we cannot catch her so there's an element of mystery in in all this, uh, and of something beyond the senses, beyond words, beyond categories. Mm-hmm. And yet, you are writing a book, and for that you need words, mm-hmm. <laughs> and structures, and forms. So, did you struggle with that?
0: I did I struggled with that a lot? And um, and then and then I tried to just give into it in a way because because it it felt like something I needed to do. Did I need to do it for myself? Did I need to do it for her? Did I need to do it for anyone else? I stopped worrying about that at a certain point. Mm. But yes, that was the big struggle of not wanting to pin something down that would make its opposite not also somehow have a place to be. Because if you really are the wisdom of the world, it's all there somehow, not just the things you like.
1: So you just said you stop thinking about why you're writing it, who's going to read it, et cetera. Nevertheless, I'm going to ask you what I try to ask most authors I speak to what do you hope readers get out of the book? Okay.
0: You know, since it's published, I have come to see that it is really an example of one person staying with a question for decades, Mm -hmm. honoring something that is in them that they are on a quest for. And of course, it's not one simple question. There are many strands that weave together over the years. I want people to honor their questions. I feel that even if they're not interested in Sophia, if they're interested in Sophia, then I hope that I invite further reflections and conversations into their life. But even if they aren't, that, that they feel the importance of honoring These deep questions that are part of our lives. They're like a life theme for us. I feel so much of our in our modern world discourages questions. Hmm. Have quick answers on the internet to everything. Yes. Everything. It used to be a question would come up at a party and everybody you know, it could be about history or literature or anything. And everyone would enter in and share a little bit and get into a little spat even, but it was very alive and life-giving to explore something together. And now the minute a question comes up, somebody whips out their phone and tells you an answer and the answer is dead and the conversation is dead and nobody has become enlivened. Through this process, I'm, I'm making it a little too strong. I I no. know, but guilty as
1: charged.
0: Oh, we all are. I am. <laughs> we all are. That's the that's the thing, and and we have so many answers now to questions we haven't even quite yet declare themselves.
1: It, it, isn't it? It's. I, I was reflecting on this the other night. I was having a conversation, and it, it was a good use of this technology.
0: And there are good uses. I don't yes, mean. It
1: was like we were talking about this movie that's coming up and, you know, someone said, who's in it? Well, you can find out in 10 seconds, who, the cast by turning on your phone, but then other questions come up and there've been times. I remember, you know, I'd be driving with Lori and we'd be trying to think of some answer to something and, um, and it could be something trivial, like the lyrics to a song. Mm-hmm. And you just pick up your phone and there it is. But I often wonder, you know, even with a question like that, wouldn't there have been some value in the pre-iPhone days
0: yeah. of just
1: like trying to remember and, you know, feeling your way through it and
0: And one of you remembers half the line, and then the other one gets the other, and you're so happy, you know.
1: Or maybe it leads to something even more fun or more interesting because you're exploring. It's uh, that other famous, another famous German thinker, Rilke, said, live the questions. Live the questions. It's a wonderful quote. Good. So listeners, get Signe's book and live the question with her. She was always there, Sophia, as a story of our time, for our time. Thank you, Signy.
0: Thank you, Phil, very much.
1: And okay. thank you uh, to Chris in absentia. Please thank him for being with us. And listeners, uh, thank you for listening in. Uh, you can find out more about Signe's book online. She was always there. And, of course, you can look up Rudolf Steiner, Anthroposophy, Waldorf Schools, and all the rest. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends about it. Email me with your suggestions. Let me know uh, of people you think I should interview on the show. Uh, Go to my website, philipgoldberg.com. Subscribe to my mailing list. I promise not to annoy you with a junk but to send out useful information and we'll see you next time thanks again Sydney